And so, Father, St. Paul said that we are seated in the heavenly places with you. God, that's a thought that's so hard for my mind to conceive. And yet, if that's true, it is well with my soul. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your love. Thank you uh, for your presence here with us right now. Father, I claim the blood of your covenant over our lives, over our souls, over this place. I thank you that you are the wall of fire around us and you are the glory in our midst. And Lord God, I pray that you this morning would preach. Um, Father, I pray that in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Lord, and ask that it would happen through the power of your Spirit. Amen. All right, you may be seated. I want to remind you that this morning's message has a pretty adult theme. Um, and, uh, oh, there's something else I wanted to say. What was that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> no leaving partway through, okay? So if you have to go to the bathroom, uh, you can wave at me and then go, okay? But other, but no leaving partway through and then coming, coming back. All right, Romans uh, chapter 1. This is our... I think it's our fourth uh, sermon in the book of Romans. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, anthropon, who hold the truth imprisoned in the chains of their unrighteousness. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Who's they? Yeah, the anthropon. The, the men, man in Ad, Adam in Hebrew, singular, but it calls to be translated mankind, it's us, it's, it's, it's us, it's humanity, it's, it's, it's you. Um, so they are without excuse. There's no excuse for you. Now, I don't know if you believe what Paul just said, but he just said, so they are without excuse and they is us, right? So. So now Paul will make his argument. For although they, which is us, right? Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they, which is us, became fools and exchanged the glory of God for immortal, of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them, that that'd be us, gave us up, peridokin, in the lust, the epithumia, desires. Did you know Jesus had epithumia? Luke twenty-two fifteen, literally translated, in lust I have lusted, said Jesus. I have earnestly desired to eat this meal with you. Body broken, bloodshed, given up, handed over to us. God gave them up in the epithumia, the desires of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God. Now who is the truth of God? class? Jesus, right. Jesus, Jesus. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, singular. Not lies, but singular lie. So what lie? 
When and where did humanity, us, exchange Jesus for a, a lie? See, I think we're back at this picture uh, in this amazing garden, uh, this picture that we ended on last week. In a garden, believing a lie, we saw that the fruit, the fruit of the tree was good for food, a, a delight to the eyes, and to be desired to make one wise. So we all exchanged the truth, the word of God, the truth is the word of God for this lie, this lie. You can take and consume the knowledge of good and evil and in this way make yourself like God in the power of your own flesh and not die. But we do die. Every one of us is dead or has died according to St. Paul. And we are all now currently trapped in bodies of death. That's what he'll call it. And dying. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature. The, the creature. What creature? Well, you, yourself, of course. You think you can take knowledge and use it to make yourself in the image of God. You think you are your own Creator, a self-made man, a self-made woman. That's the very pinnacle of idolatry. They, which is us, exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them, which is us, up to dishonorable passions. Pathos, from the verb pasco, translated suffering or, or passion. So just as there are bad desires and a good desire, there are bad passions, right? Right? Some people think all desires and all passions are good, and yet we all agree that although Hitler was passionate about taking the life of six million Jews and earnestly desired to do so, it was still wrong. It was just wrong. There are bad passions, and there is at least one good passion, actually Christ's passion. Not to take life, but to give his life for all. That's his earnest desire. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women, their women, exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Now, Paul doesn't specify what those, those are, but now the men. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. I've been almost physically ill this week thinking about preaching on this text. I've been trying to avoid this topic for 20 years now. And now I have more to say than I begin to say and you will have more yeah buts than you can begin to verbalize. I used to think this was a simple topic but I think this way no longer. And yet in another way, maybe it is simple. Well, I used to think this was a simple topic when, for me, it was an abstract topic. But now I have a list of, of names. 
16 names that I wrote at the top of my notes earlier this week. I, I thought there would be three or four names. That's what I thought when I saw it. But there were 16 when I thought about it. Names, male friends who have or had, some are, some are now dead, significant same-sex attraction. I think the number shocked me because I hadn't thought of most of them as, as gay, but as them, my friends, each one with a name, each one with a story. One of them was my childhood best, my best friend, Brad, who died of AIDS and for whom I did a funeral several years ago. One of them was a man whom I considered and still consider to be like my second father. Three or four of them were or are pastors and have been pastors to me. Ten of them have confided in me about their sexuality in some form at some point. I respect all of them. And most of them have a deep and abiding love for Jesus. One or two, I would, I know this. I would gladly die for at the, top, at the drop of a hat, and I think they would die for me. Some of them would say they have a measure of choice in their orientation. Most would say that they do not. And I believe them. What I would say to each one of them is unique to each one of them. And what I think each one of them would say to me is also unique. In the 1970s, for me and many like me, this was an abstract, hypothetical discussion. For, for I, thought I, I thought that I didn't know any homosexuals. Although, I now know that I did. Indeed, several of the names on, on the list. I made the list so that I wouldn't, this wouldn't be abstract any longer, and I would at least try to not speak about this topic without thinking of them. It used to be abstract and hidden and taboo, but it's definitely not that way any longer, is it? It would be easy to assume that Paul just couldn't grasp the diversity of modern American culture when he wrote to the Romans, and that may be true in some ways, but it's definitely not true in other ways. There were Jews in the church in Rome, and for a Jew, any adultery was punishable by stoning. And heterosexual marriage was seen as a sacred representation of God's relationship with Israel. And, and now we know that Jesus is the groom. He is. And humanity is his, his bride. And yet Jesus was single and celibate as he walked the face of this earth. And all of us, male and female, are to be wed to him in the age to come. Quite a picture. So there were Jews in the church in Rome, and there were a bunch of Gentiles, both Greek and Roman. And for most of them, homosexuality was more like golf. Some played, and some did not play. It was not your identity. It was your pastime. And no one really seemed to care. Except, of course, for those that were abused. It was fairly common for a married man to practice pederasty, that is, retain a young male sex partner on, on the side. Oftentimes, the boy was a, was a slave. And every time the master raped him, he reminded him, I'm the master, you're the slave. In Rome, the male sex act was often an expression of power. 
more than affection. And sometimes it was worship before an idol. So it was to that young, diverse church in Rome that Paul wrote these things. And they must have thought, Paul, what are you thinking? I mean, this is not going to help our discussion at the church potluck. Right? What are you thinking? Well, we definitely know that there are some things that Paul was not thinking. Listen closely. He was not thinking that there is a group of people that God, who is love, does not love. And I believe that he was definitely not thinking there is a group of people that God will not justify, sanctify, and redeem. And Paul is going to make that plenty clear in just a little bit. But we do naturally wonder what the Romans must have wondered. Paul, why did you bring this up? And what is the dishonorable passion? Some say that Paul is clearly referring to heterosexual men who have left their natural urges to engage in pederasty prostitution and even idolatrous cult prostitution and raped and rape. But 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 they say Paul is not referring to the lifelong committed homosexual relationships that some men and women experience in our culture today. Others say it's true that Paul must have been thinking of the pagan practices in Rome but also of Old Testament law regarding all homosexual activity. Any homosexual passion, they would say, is a dishonorable passion. Well, Paul was a Jewish rabbi and a Roman citizen. So he knew the Old Testament and was all about explaining Old Testament laws to Romans, and yet... He didn't explain it in the way that most Jews wanted him to explain it. And that's going to become obvious here in a little bit as well. Homosexuality only shows up in three or four places in the Old Testament. First, Ham. I think Ham was mad because his dad named him Ham. That's my theory. I don't know. But Ham, um, Noah's son Ham, appears to have raped his dad Noah just after they got off the boat. Noah built a, had a, planted a vineyard, got drunk, and, and Ham raped him, and that appears to have been a dishonorable passion because Noah then curses Canaan, his grandson, throughout all generations or something like that. Second, the story of Sodom, and yet any five-minute read of that story will reveal that the real problem in Sodom wasn't homosexuality as such, but the intended gang rape of three male angels and possibly Lot's daughters who Lot offers to this crowd in exchange for the angels. It's quite a story. Third, Leviticus 18, 22, and 2013. God speaks a fairly clear command to the sons of Israel in the desert. You shall not lie with a male as one does with a female, with a woman. It is an abomination. But the problem with arguing from that text is that it's part of the Levitical law distinguishing the um, the Israelites from the pagan idolaters all around them. It, and, it, and it's Paul who seems to pretty clearly indicate that not all of those Levitical laws are to be applied to Gentiles either then or, or now. The purity code includes things like dietary restrictions, circumcision, strict Sabbath observance, a, a ban on sex during menstruation, and a ban on tattoos. 
And so I thought this picture does a nice job of summing up the problem with simply deriving your ethics from Levitical law. Tattoo of Leviticus 18.22, forbidding homosexuality, $200. Not knowing that Leviticus 19.28 forbids tattoos, priceless. <laughs> but now listen, this is really important. Paul didn't think that the law no longer mattered. He thought it was fulfilled somehow in us in some sort of remarkable new way. In the New Testament, all apparent references to homosexuality come from Paul, and surprisingly from no, no one else, including Jesus. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 1 Timothy 1, 10, Paul lists some dishonorable passions and activities, and some of the words in many translations are translated homosexual, homosexual homosexuality, engaged in homosexual activity. In both 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians, Paul uses the word asinakoites, is constructed from two other Greek words for man and bed, meaning something like man better. But what exactly that means is a topic of great debate among language scholars and historians. It's a word of which we have no record of use before Paul, and very little record of use after Paul. Some think it refers to pedophilia or pederasty or male prostitution or perhaps just any rape a man forcefully betting anything, rape. Others think it refers to all male homosexual activity, men betting men. Malakos literally means soft. And the, the, I think the adjective is sometimes translated sickly. And it might refer to all sorts of dishonorable, cowardly, weak passions in people no matter their sexual orientation. Anthropodistes is usually translated enslaver and means slave dealer of men, and so some think that these three words together portray the role of slave dealer, sex slave, and the arsenicoites, the, the men that would imbibe. However, none of it is very clear. The clearest reference to homosexuality in the New Testament are the two verses we just read in Romans chapter 1. Some say the dishonorable passion is a passion for any homosexual activity. Some say it's not the passion, just the activity, but Paul uses the word passion, and both Paul and Jesus seem to be very concerned about the intents and desires of the human heart. Some say the dishonorable passion is pederasty and cult prostitution, but not simply homosexuality as such. They point to the fact that this is described as idolatry and, that the, and the fact that in, in our text, the participants leave their natural inclinations, apparently heterosexuality, to participate in inclinations unnatural to them, like a, you know, a married Roman man leaving his family and having sex with a boy. Some also point out that Paul will soon describe God as doing unnatural things. Like, like circumcision, Romans 2.27, and grafting Gentiles into the house of Israel, Romans 11.24. So unnatural isn't necessarily bad, and yet that argument does go in a little different direction than the previous argument. And they'll point out, rightfully, they will point out the obvious fact that receiving the due penalty within themselves cannot refer to AIDS because there, there was no AIDS at the time. However, it may very well refer to Emperor Caligula, who was assassinated with a knife plunged into his genitals by a dude that was really mad that he raped his wife after a dinner party, along with a whole bunch of other guys. I mean, 
Anyway, all that to say that there is quite a bit of debate as to what Paul means by dishonorable passion. And there is quite a bit of debate as to why whatever Paul does mean by dishonorable passion, it, it should matter. To be fair, even Paul asks that question around certain ethical issues regarding certain groups that he's writing to. Listen to this, 1 Corinthians eleven thirteen. To the Corinthians, he writes, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that long hair on a man is a disgrace? Judge for yourselves. So, okay. I don't think it's improper for a woman to pray with her hair uncovered and that a long hair on a dude is necessarily a disgrace, Paul. And, and check this out. In other places, other times, I think Paul would judge that issue entirely the same as me because Paul, of all people, knew that God had commanded Samson to never cut his hair. You may be noticed, but so far Paul is not prescribing anything. He's not saying that you should do this or should not do that. He's not prescribing anything that we should do. Technically, he's describing what we did do. Technically, the men and their women in verses 26 and 27 are us. Now, people just seem to kind of like ignore that. Instead, we all just want to know what's good and what's evil. What is or is not a dishonorable passion? Is it a type of abusive sex action in ancient Roman? What would that be? Or is it homosexuality just kind of in, in general? And, and so we, we want to know, should I accuse or should I excuse homosexuality? And homosexuals, I should say. Jesus said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This is the law and the prophets. Chapter 14, Paul is, is going to agree, I think. So I, I get terrified. I just need to tell you this. I get terrified that I might say something that would make one of my homosexual friends condemn or hurt themselves. I also get terrified that I might say something that would make a confused kid pick a lifestyle that would lead to a great deal of pain and sorrow. So what would I say to me if me was them? Or them was me, or however that works. I mean, if I was one of the 16 men on my list, what would I want someone like me to do and to say? You know, there's a huge portion of the church that would really like me to accuse and if I did, they'd be much more likely to join our conservative institution. And there is another huge portion of the church that would like me to excuse. That is to say, there's no sin here, nothing to forgive here. And if I did excuse, they'd be much more likely to join our progressive institution. Almost all of the church thinks it's my job to accuse and excuse. 
My job to accuse and excuse and to help them accuse and excuse, that is give them more knowledge of good and evil so they can judge themselves and everyone else accordingly. Well, when in doubt, when in doubt, just keep reading, okay? This is gonna be important for the book of Romans. Next verse, 28. And since they, which is them, which is us, did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them, which is they, which is us, up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They, which is them, which is us, were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. I think that's dishonorable passions, evil, covetousness. Do you know what covetousness is? Our economy literally runs on covetousness, wanting what you do not have. 2 Corinthians 8, 14, in Greece, Paul takes an offering for Jerusalem and Israel, writing that there should be, and you can check this out in the Greek, equality. According to Gallup, the median household income worldwide is $10,000 a year. Jesus, you know, Jesus didn't talk about homosexual, but he sure does talk about money a lot. So if someone has a household income over $10,000 a year, what do we say? Accuse or excuse? If someone has a luxury car, like an Acura, what do we say? Accuse or excuse? Verse 29, evil, covetousness, malice, they, which is them, which is us, are full of envy. (sighs) Have you ever envied? Murder. Now you may think, I haven't murdered, which just shows you haven't paid attention to the Sermon on the Mount. Murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, they're gossips. What is gossip? It's bad, we know that, but what is it? I mean, if you watch The View on ABC, accuse or excuse? People Magazine, my wife gets People Magazine, accuse or excuse? National Enquirer, accuse or excuse? Gossip, slanderers, that's accusing someone of evil, gay or straight. Haters of God, whatever you do the least of these, you do to me, said Jesus. Insolent, haughty, that should be translated proud. So gay pride or straight pride, they they both seem to be dishonorable passions. Boastful inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. You see, the progression of evil is just increasing, increasing, increasing. Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, which can also be translated unfaithful. Have you ever read what Jesus says about divorce? Do you know who it is that softens Jesus' statements so that pastors feel comfortable with marrying divorced people? Paul? Have you ever read what Jesus says about lust, about looking upon a woman with lust, which probably implies another man's husband, but, or woman, but, but we, don't know, we don't know for sure. Think, think what you will about homosexuality, but isn't it kind of bizarre that we would all hire a bunch of rich philandering senators to write laws on marriage and other people's sex lives? Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, Though they, which is them, which is us, they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. That's the due penalty that we receive within ourselves for our error, isn't it? In scripture, there isn't a punishment worse than death. Hell is getting stuck in death. And salvation is the death of death. 
They don't only do them, but give approval. That is, they excuse. After they accuse, saying, surely dying, you won't die. Take some more knowledge of good and evil and keep on judging. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Next sentence, remembering that the chapter divisions were added a thousand years later by the institutional church. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Therefore, you, Paul just switched from them to you. Therefore, therefore, therefore tells us what this discussion is there for. Therefore, you have no excuse. There's no excuse for you. That's what he said back at the start, chapter 1, verse 20, when we kind of thought, ah, it's not talking about me. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. In Hebrew, that would be, O Adam, the anthropos. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Whenever I accuse or excuse someone, I judge them. I judge that someone. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn, catacrima, you damn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. I didn't write the Bible, okay? I didn't write it, but I think Paul just accused you and me of every dishonorable passion practice on this list, beginning in verse 26 and ending here. And, check this out, in accusing you, he also accuses himself. In fact, he clearly states that he is, quote, the foremost of sinners. So if you're asking, what's the worst, who's the foremost? Paul, he, it's in the Bible, believe your Bible. Foremost of sinners, as if he can't seem to help it, he's already taken the fruit from the tree. Isn't that crazy? He said, there is no excuse for you. And we didn't believe him. So he brought up a controversial and confusing topic. We took the bait and began to do what we always do. Accuse and excuse. He reeled us in, pronounced the judgment that was pronounced at the beginning of time. The day you eat of it, dying, you will die. <laughs> So what is the dishonorable passion? It's judging your neighbor, which is judging yourself, which is judging the creator, and so trapping the truth in the hell which is your own ego. And please, please hear me. It's not that there's no good and evil. There is most definitely good and evil. If anyone denies that fact, they will soon betray that lie by arguing that their opinion is good and yours is evil. Just listen to them. There's definitely good and evil. And the knowledge of good and evil is not evil. Just as the law is not evil. However, taking that knowledge to judge another is like 
the pinnacle of evil. When you judge actions, and and we all have to judge actions, but when you judge actions, you judge abstractions and you do it poorly, right? That vehicle's going 57 miles an hour, not 55 miles an hour. What does that mean? When you judge actions, you judge abstractions and you do it poorly. A law is knowledge of good and evil, but it's a particular type of knowledge. It's dead knowledge of abstractions that aren't even people. When you judge actions, you judge abstractions and you do it poorly, but when you judge people, you judge a judgment that is made in a garden in the temple of your neighbor's soul at the edge of time and eternity. And now we're back to this picture. Are there not two passions? Are there not two desires represented in this picture? Number one, humanity's desire. And number two, God's desire. Number one, humanity, that's you. You desire to take knowledge of good and evil in order to judge yourself and so attempt to make yourself in the image and likeness of God, and so you die. But number two, God's desire. God desires to know you, that you might know him, that you might live his life, and so be made in his image and likeness, and so you live. So number one, You can take the life on the tree in an attempt to justify yourself. Or number two, God can give you his life on the tree and make you in his own image. Number one is the desire to judge. Number two is the desire of the judge. Number one is sin, the dishonorable passion. Number two is love. The passion of the Christ. If you love, you fulfill the entire law, says Paul and Jesus. But even if you have faith to move mountains to deliver your body to be burned, but you don't have love, you got nothing. You are nothing and you gain nothing, writes Paul. We can't judge love because love is the judge. And we sure as hell can't judge love in our neighbor for it is a decision that is made in the sanctuary of their own soul. You see, love and not love can look just alike to us. They're like wheat and tares that grow in a garden that is a person's soul. And none of us can separate the two, but they will be separated. They will be separated. They will be separated by the judge on judgment day. And yet your judgment day can be now whenever you surrender to the judge in the sanctuary of your own soul, and that's called faith. Romans 14, Paul writes this, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Why do you pass judgment on your brother, or why do you despise your brother? 
For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give account of himself to God. I, I cannot accuse or excuse because to do either one of those is to judge. However, I can hand people over to the judge. In other words, I can let God judge. Let is this Greek word, aphiomi, that's also sometimes translated forgive. Everyone that's anyone must be forgiven. That is judged. That is made in the image and likeness of God who is Jesus, made in the image of likeness of God by the revelation of, of grace. So what can I, the pastor, say to you or to any one of the 16 men on my list who sometimes refer to themselves as gay? Well, I can definitely give them advice, particularly if it's requested. I can say, well, knowing what I know of Jesus and what I know of you and what I know of Scripture, I think he might be asking you to do this, that, or the other thing. You see, if I love you, I can advise you. But I can't judge you. I can't judge you, but I can preach to you. And the men on my list preach the gospel. I can say it's not good for a man to be alone. That's the first thing God declared not good. And so I don't want you to be alone. And I can say God is love and he loves you. And I love you. And I can say, although I don't know exactly what you should do, I can point you, I can point you to the one who does. This is what I said to the man on my list that I love the very most. I said, I, I don't know exactly what to tell you to do. But I am trusting that you will listen to the one who does because I know he's with you. And I know he absolutely adores you. And I know he speaks to you in the sanctuary of your own soul. One of the people on my list is named Arnie McCoy. And so I asked my brother Arn to share just a little bit of his story, which is God's story, with you right now. So Arn, you wanna come up here? Let me pray for you. Thanks. Father, I thank you for Arn. I thank you for your love for Arn and his love for you. And that he who loves is born of God and knows God. And so God, would you speak to us through Arn as you speak to us through each other's stories and knit us together as your new creation. Amen. Amen. I'll put this back here so I try not to knock it off. It's harder than it looks when you do it in person. Okay, I'm just going to give up and put it back up here. If it falls off, we'll deal with it. Uh, my name's Arn. How's that? There. I think we got it. 
I got to tell you up front, I've seldom shared this story with anyone, let alone my close family members. So it might be hard to hear for some of you, it might be hard to hear for them, and it might be over emotionally overwhelming for me. So I ask for patience to hang with me through the end. That said, it's time that I had the courage to share my story. Respect for you as well, to no longer hide in the shadows and live in the shadows, and to not live in fear any longer. I grew up in Salida. This is my story. I'm number two of four boys. My dad was a well driller until rheumatoid arthritis pretty much knocked him out. And then my mom, who ran the books for the well drilling company, went to work for the social services, where she worked for 30, over 30 years. She just retired at 72. She's down in uh, South America. I think she's on the Galapagos this week. She's off Gallivant and around the world. Growing up, we were Easter Christmas Baptists. Went to the First Baptist Church. And we uh, weren't really schooled in God the Father. Seldom ever heard of God, Son, or Spirit. But what we did here was the Lord, and we needed to worship the Lord. And when we were sinning, we knew that it was the Lord that was displeased, as well as mom and dad. When I was five, I was saved, the Baptist version of saved by the lady that lived next door. Her and mom had a Bible study in the summer for kids that year, and Debbie took me out for a ride, and she asked me if I was saved, and I said no, and we talked about it. And I said a prayer, and at five years old, here I am 50 years later, I can't tell you exactly what it was, but I could feel that there was something inside me. It didn't come into me, but it was more like just something opened up in, in, inside my soul, in, in me, and I could feel it. It was an explosion of the something into the nothingness that was my soul. I didn't know how different I was, but I, I, I knew I was different from my brothers. They would attest to that. But in sixth grade, my older brother invited me to go to youth group. So I went to youth group, and I took to it like a duck to water. It wasn't long before I was actually trying to evangelize people. I took my Bible with me to school. Not knowing that I was different until English in junior high. The cutest girl in the class, the whole class, Kali Brazil, went up to the chalkboard to diagram a sentence and I took my notes, taking the notes, and she sat down and then a guy that was in front of me got called up and I forgot about my notes. And I just stared and watched and I realized that my body reacted in different ways that I, I didn't know. There were new things going on that I just was like, all of a sudden it occurred to me, oh crap, oh God. In sudden fear and shame, I began a long journey that lasted decades of self-loathing and effort to change. I prayed nonstop. Oftentimes, throughout junior high and indeed into high school, I would stay up all night. Mom and Dad couldn't figure it out. They just figured I was studying, but I was studying all right. I was reading scripture, and I was praying to take this away from me and cure me. At youth group and church, I excelled. I, I led, I taught, I grew. At one point, they called me, you're going to be the next Billy Graham. But inside, I knew otherwise. I knew what I was. I was a failure. Because no matter how hard I tried, no matter how much I prayed or read or denied my own flesh, the dreams, the thoughts, the magnetism, the same sex never changed. I knew the truth of my being. I'd read it. 
That was an abomination. An abomination hated by others, condemned to hell by God. So at the age of 17, I appeared to be on a fast track. I had straight A's, I had scholarship. I had a bright future. I had been elected student body president, but I prayed God to take it. End it now before I become something that I don't think I am and I don't want to be, and I, I'm trying to change. I asked him to take it, end it, call me home. When he didn't answer those prayers, I took matters into my own hands. We were a good redneck family, I'm proud of it. At, at 16, mom and dad bought us each a, a rifle. Mine was a 300 Magnum Weatherby. For those of you that don't know guns, well, the assault rifles, picture an older, batter, just got out of prison kind of cousin, and that's a 300 Magnum, shoots a slug about that big. I knew what it would do because I'd seen it do it and I'd made it do it to deer. I took my Bronco and my gun and I went up to the hills north of Salida where I was born. I went up to a meadow. It kind of looked like a garden with the sun and the wind. And there was a tree in the garden. And I drove over there. I'd gone up there and hid out lots of times praying. I had it all planned out. I wrote a letter, just cursory, that just said, I wasn't what people thought I was, and I couldn't bear the truth or to break their hearts. Left the keys in the Bronco, went over to the tree, got the gun, and I had it planned out. Get the trigger lock, flip the safety, and just jam it down like that, and it'll be over. So I did. I got down onto it, I flipped the safety. As my finger hit the trigger guard and I drew tension to end it, it was gonna go right there. I heard a screech. I heard a scream right over my head. And it scared me and I looked up and dropped the gun and there was an eagle. I'm not making this up. There was this big ass, can I say that? <laughs> this giant golden eagle and it was right over me and it was looking right down on me, just right there. And then it didn't say anything and it just went and it just glided down the meadow never flapped once, riding air currents down to the trees, up over, half of a wing over, and disappeared. And it left me there, in the middle. I heard a voice in my head and a new thought, and it just said, you are my beloved. What if I would rather you live, even if you might be gay or not, whatever, what if I would rather you live than end it now? So I gathered my gun and I, I sobbed and went home. I spent the next 20 years trying to change. You know, the eagle didn't give me any theology or direction. It just said, I love you. I went to Caldo Christian College for one semester, spent every dime I had to go to one semester. The money didn't materialize to continue, but I did get tied in with an ex-gay group. I went there for years throughout college and after. It's still going. It's called Where Grace Abounds. I did counseling therapy. I went on retreats. I did everything I could think of and then some. I tried to deny my flesh, but I wasn't blessed with that gift, and I burned in lust. I joined the Navy and became a pilot, went to flight school, and thought, now those guys, they, they could never struggle with this. Sadly, I was wrong. 
It was there in the Navy that I realized that some things weren't going to change. Even when I had the hottest girlfriend in the squadron at the time, her name was Jennifer, and she was just something. She just lit up the room, and the two of us could dance, and we would just go tear up the country western dancing together, western swing. We had it down. And then one day there was another guy there to dance that was with his wife, and all of a sudden I realized this guy was staring at me the way that I wanted to stare back at him. And once again, my body started reacting. And it wasn't the hottest girl I'd ever had in my life, even though she was right there in my arms. It wasn't her that I longed and ached. I longed and ached for. It wasn't her physically, mentally, emotionally. So for 18 more years, I hid, and I stayed hid. I tried to run from God, but I didn't get very far. The hound of heaven, shout out to Thomas Talbot, he never let me get too far. And I went to church wherever I was stationed. But I got wearied of being asked, Son, why are you still single? We need to get you married off. I confided once, one of the churches I went to, the pastor, and told him, Why? I quickly regretted it, and he told me that I was welcome to continue to attend. I could continue to tithe. They would welcome me to tithe at the church, but I would never be allowed to be a voting member of the church. Period. So I stayed more underground, and I just worked. It was don't ask, don't tell in the Navy. It was don't ask, don't tell at home and in my life. I tried to find some space in the middle. On the one hand, I would go to church and I would hear the gospel, but I would also be condemned and feel condemned. On the other hand, I would feel love and acceptance and light, but I wouldn't hear the gospel. So I just kind of tried to bounce through the middle in my life. And then I had a chance meeting with a Lutheran pastor in Las Vegas after I'd got out of the Navy. I'd heard him preach, and I felt it was spirit-led. Spirit <laughs> Weird for a Lutheran church, right? But this place was different. And one day after the service, I went up and I handed him a note because I knew I wouldn't be able to speak. I asked if I'd be welcome to, I'd be welcome to come here if he knew I was gay. And Pastor Mark put his arm on my shoulder, and he looked up at me and gave me the warmest look of my life. He said, let me tell you something. We're a Galatians 3.28 church. In God, there's no male, no female, no Jew or Gentile, only one. And I heard the eagle of heaven say once again, do you get it? What if I love you anyway? It changed my life. And now, I don't know what's right or wrong sexually for you, or most of the time even for me. I just try to stay focused on Jesus and living how He would want me to. Because when I don't, I hear voices. Like the pastor who once told me that he had the solution to the gay crisis and homosexual agenda, and that's just, we'll send them all to an island so they can give each other AIDS and die, and then God will send them to hell. That was his solution and other things more vile than that from men of the cloth. When I focus on that, I want to go in, I want to go in, I want to quote scripture. I want to judge them in a rage and I want to condemn them to hell. I do not want to and I cannot love them. But then I have to come back to the tree and I have to confess I am not God. Thankfully, thank God I'm not God. And I'm not worthy, but I know someone who is, and I think he likes me. 
So folks, I don't know. I just try to live from my core. In my core, I finally know after 55 years that God, Father, loving Son, an unfathomable spirit, they know me completely, the good, the bad, and the ugly. They accept me without reservation and love me without condition. They like me. They love me, faults and all. When I camp there, I realize that I'm here. I know why I'm here, and I know I have a job to do. Us Baptists, we love having our jobs. Onward Christian soldiers. <laughs> My job, I'm here because the three of them got together and they wanted a kid that looked just like me. I'm the only one that can do it. So my job is to be perfectly imperfect me. I expose myself to God and his judgment, warts and all. I don't know what is right or wrong for you or anyone else, but what I do know what is right is Jesus, loving Father, unfathomable spirit. When I see that, when I come to the table, to the tree in the middle of that field, I look in his face, I know that I am loved. <laughs> For me, that's enough. Indeed, that's all there is. That's all that matters. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, bud. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks, Iron. Uh, we went out to coffee a couple years ago, I think, and I loved talking with Arn because I could just be entirely honest with Arn, and I think Arn was entirely honest with me, and then he told me the story about the eagle. He said, yep, sounds like Jesus. The judgment of God. Arn went to the field to judge himself. And there he was judged by the judgment of God. The evil eagle didn't give him a list, because that's what we want, a list. can give him more laws or a set of directions. The eagle simply revealed the truth. You are my beloved. Don't think that I'm saying that God isn't concerned with making us good. I think God is only concerned with making us good, as he is good. I'm just saying that we can't make ourselves good by taking the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and applying it to our lives. Only God can make us good by giving us himself and applying his life to us. That happens every time we come to the tree in the middle of the garden, every time we come to the cross. Every time that we come to the table of the Lord, every time we confess our bad judgment and receive his good judgment, in his presence, dishonorable passions die. And the honorable passion begins to rule on the throne in the sanctuary of a heart, the heart of Adam, mankind made in the image and likeness of God. And so our beloved took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take and eat. In the same way, he took the cup, saying, this is the covenant in my blood 
poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. Here's the tree. You're his garden. And so, Lord God, I surrender my garden to you. We surrender our garden to you. I confess my will to you. I know, Lord God, I have bad will. I also know that I have good will that is your will. God, my heart is like a field of wheat and tares. God, I thank you for your word and scripture. I thank you for the law. I thank you for you, the word, Lord Jesus, who takes up residence in my garden, because even with scripture, I have such a hard time trying to sort the wheat from the tares. Lord, my own sex life is so confusing to me after all these years of marriage, and I got it easy. My finances. Lord, I can't separate the wheat from the tares in my own field. And so, God, I, um, I think I'm incapable of doing it in another's. But, Lord God, I do know that you're true, and I do know that you're good. And so, Lord God, I invite your fire. I pray that you would pour out your holy fire on all of us, that you would burn away the tares, that you would be the glory, the light that shines within us. Father, we offer ourselves to you as living sacrifices. And so, fire, descend upon your temple and have your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, stay staying for just a second, because it's only take a minute. I didn't finish the verse. Uh, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, Adam, you who judge those who practice such things and do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Yes! That is exactly what we suppose, right? We suppose that if we can condemn someone else, then we can escape the judgment ourselves. But that is exactly the abomination for which we must all be judged. Luke 16, verse 15, Jesus says, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Your pride is an abomination in the sight of God. But, I watched you, you came to this table. And so you need to know, you've been judged. So stop judging yourself. Stop judging your neighbor. Oh, and this is important, this is Satan's last trick. Stop judging the judges whom you have judged to be judges. Just say hallelujah. 
praise God, I'm free of me. Amen. If you'd like prayer, uh, members of the, I think members of the, Ted will be down front here, love to pray with you.